Welcome back to the Free Impact Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Curran Rajan, and I'm giving away three copies of Dr. Curran's book, This Book May Save Your Life. And all you have to do to enter is head over to our YouTube channel, Freedom Pact, or youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. Click on our episode with Dr. Curran Rajan in video format. It'll be live as of the 12th of February at 5 p.m. UK time. Drop a comment on the video saying what your favorite part of the episode was or why you enjoyed the episode. And I will pick three of you, if you're from the UK, to receive a brand new copy of this book. Now, Dr. Karan Rajan is an NHS surgeon and one of the biggest health and science content creators on the planet. If you're on TikTok, I'm sure you've seen one of his videos at one point. They go consistently viral. He's one of my favorite content creators. And amongst being a a content creator and a NHS surgeon, he's also a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Sunderland Medical School and formerly at Imperial College London. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We talk about everything from gut health to brain health, to sleep health, to eyesight, to smell, to everything. We try and cover it all in this episode. So please enjoy this episode with Dr. Karan Rajan. What is the healthiest way to sit on a toilet? Well, if you look at the traditional toilets of yesteryear, they weren't really the Western commodes that we see today. People often across the centuries, uh, well, across millennia, and if you look at the furthest evidence we have of how people used to take a dump, it was adopting a squatting position. And it even happens in many African and Asian countries where people are squatting for their daily ritual. And it's that squatting position which is the most natural position to evacuate our bowels. And in a Western toilet, we can't do that. It's a 90 degree angle, which means that our pelvic floors are slightly tighter, which means we have to apply more intra-abdominal pressure and pressure in the colon and pelvic floor to essentially squeeze out the poo, like you're squeezing toothpaste out of that last bit. And that's going to increase your risk of hemorrhoids and all sorts of other proctological problems. It's interesting this conversation around the gut. I've I've interviewed a lot of health related guests on this podcast. Some, um, you know, share a lot of the same ideas. Some have controversial ideas. But the one thing that every one of them seems to agree on is the importance of the microbiome. What makes this thing so important for our overall health, and why should the everyday person care? So the microbiome, the whole research and evidence we have and our understanding of it is in its infancy. And we need to acknowledge that first and foremost. In just a couple of decades ago, topics that centered around probiotics, the microbiome, that was essentially considered fringe hippie science. It is now mainstream and it's taken center stage. And the problem is now because we understand or increasingly understand about the importance of all of these microbes within us, archaea, fungi, viruses, most importantly, bacteria, we know how important they are now. And that has led to almost a trend of pseudoscientists and charlatans and even people who are real scientists thinking that they can 
sell gut health products to people and even influencers who know nothing about gut health. And the problem is we know it's important because we know the gut microbiome, it can control our desires, produce metabolites, which can be beneficial for our mental health, physical health, gut health, and beyond. It can determine our risk and protection against various chronic diseases, including cancer, including various autoimmune diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. But we really don't understand fully how we can personalize our lives and our nutritions to our individual microbiome. Our, our microbiome, your microbiome and microbiome are like another species living inside us. It's a collective, it's a legion of microbes which then form another genome, another set of DNA of genetic information. Now, how do we treat this other person living inside us? We know the broad strokes, optimize your sleep, eat more fiber, throw in some fermented foods. These kind of things are the basics which any human being or even microbiome would benefit from. But how does Lewis's microbiome differ from Curran's microbiome? What can we do? And that's where we're trying to find out more about. And that's where the charlatans come in with pseudoscience about gut health. The first time I really had a discussion and heard about the microbiome was when I was the first time I interviewed, I think it's a mutual friend of ours, uh, Dr. Will Bolshevitz. Um, and he was talking about this idea of a gut brain connection. Is this real? And what is the level of communication taking place there? So I definitely think it is very real. And there's evidence to suggest that you know, I wouldn't say I, I would go beyond a gut brain connection. It's a gut brain microbiota axis. Hmm. Uh, and the gut on its own contains the enteric nervous system, which is another nervous system in the gut. And you've got the brain, which has the central nervous system. And within the enteric nervous system and the gut, you've got the microbiome, which are its own living organisms producing chemicals and neurotransmitters, which can then interact with the brain. Now, the route via this interaction takes place is through the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is the largest nerve in the body. And a significant section of its course runs through the gut, runs through the abdomen. Um, and so we know that, for example, there may be certain species of bacteria which produce beneficial chemicals and metabolites and neurotransmitters and hormones, which can then trigger and stimulate the vagus nerve or other cells which can then feed back to our brain now this is again where a lot of pseudoscience can come in we know that the gut produces the bulk of the serotonin in the body but that serotonin does not cross the blood-brain barrier so you cannot eat something expect then the serotonin from the food you've produced to then go to the brain but if you have a high fiber diet your microbiome will flourish they'll produce beneficial metabolites, which will make you feel better mentally. So it, it, there is a connection. We're still figuring it out. You mentioned, um, just to, to circle back on something you said about these products that people make around the gut. And, and I think a lot of people get confused when, you know, you go to the supermarket, you see them in the supermarket, probiotics, prebiotics, you know, there's so many gut yogurts and, and supplements. Where... Where do we start? How do we know what's beneficial and what's just being sold to us as snake oil? 
Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, if you walk through any supermarket aisle, you'll see dozens of pills, powders, yogurts, and shakes claiming to be good for your gut health. Gut health almost is like a stamp of approval. If it, if something doesn't have gut health, gut health on it, then don't buy it. Yeah. The problem is that, you know, it's like expecting you and I or everyone listening to this podcast to go to a suit, short, uh, a suit shop and expecting all of us to be able to buy an off-the-rack suit and it fitting us, all the same size. And that's like expecting everyone to go to the supermarket, buy a little strawberry-flavored probiotic drink, and expecting it to work for every one of us, and expecting it to have a favorable outcome. That doesn't work because we know our microbiomes are individual. We need to tailor it to that. And so the best way is to avoid consumer-grade probiotics, and just get your probiotics from natural sources, mm. like yogurt, fermented vegetables, pickled vegetables, just things like that. You get your prebiotic fibers from fruit and veg, leave the skin on. You know, coffee has prebiotic fibers, chocolate has prebiotic fibers. A little bit of more digging into basic nutritional science will guard people against the pseudoscientists flogging products. A couple of years ago, this sort of wave started around uh, the word protein. Um, you know, you go to the supermarket, you'll see protein yogurts, protein milk, protein cereal, pro anything with the word protein on. It just seems to be the ultimate marketing tool these days. And when I am in work and I go into the staff kitchen, I see all so much of this stuff. Everything just says high protein, high protein. And I don't even think people look at the actual protein content. And now I'm starting to notice a similar thing around fiber. You go, you go to the uh, supermarket, as we mentioned, and, and things are labeled high in fiber. And you don't even really know what that means. You just think, well, that must be good. Otherwise, they wouldn't be advertising it. What do you wish more people knew about fiber and the role it plays within the gut? So, you know, fiber is like a, a bowel doctor's best friend. You know, it's mm. something that's a great supplement for people to take that's going to have minimal downside and only upside, really, if you think about it. The average adult, if you compare it country by country, roughly it centers around where everyone agrees on 30 grams of fiber a day for an adult. You know, this is assuming you don't have specific bowel conditions, uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome or something like that. And most people in the Western world don't get anywhere near that 30 gram figure. Our microbiome, the bacteria living within us, they thrive on fiber. They need to ferment and digest fiber to thrive themselves and then produce beneficial compounds like short chain fatty acids, butyric acid, for example, which can then help to almost line our intestinal walls and protect them against leakage and inflammation. Now, how do we get more fiber? It's not necessarily through added fiber in these products because a lot of that is highly processed fiber, which is not the same as getting the fiber from fruit and veg. And going beyond just fiber, that is doing its disservice because we know we need different types of fiber and fiber adjacent products. We need insoluble fiber, we need soluble fiber, and we need resistant starch. And the insoluble fiber, you typically think about the skin of fruit and vegetables, like leave your skin on the potatoes, that's your insoluble fiber. The flesh of fruit and veg, your legumes or rice, that is the soluble fiber. And resistant starches, you can also get in like, for example, you cook rice or potato, 
and you cool it down and reheat it, a lot of the simple starches get converted into resistant starches, which become more fiber-like. Mm -hmm. So those three different types of fiber that we need. It's not just fiber. Yeah, I think when it comes to fiber, or in, in my experience, and when I've spoken to friends about this, when there comes a point where there's a symptom that lets them know, let's just say that they need more fiber, the, the number one go-to is to, to grab a fiber supplement like psyllium husk pills or something like that. How does that type of supplement differ from, say, quality fiber, as you mentioned there, that you would find in foods? Would you encourage people to firstly look at their diet before trying to grab supplements like these pills? So the one you mentioned, psyllium uh, pills, I, I think they're a great fiber supplement. Uh, you get psyllium pills, you get psyllium husk, hmm. uh, which is like kind of like the advanced high level stuff. And you get psyllium powders as well, which are a bit more gentle. Now, psyllium and these type of fiber supplements can be great at both treating diarrhea and constipation because they can form soluble gel-like uh, substances and also help to kind of scrape the intestinal lining. Now, even if you have a good diet, there's nothing wrong with supplementing it with these things that you mentioned. But I would say that when you're eating fruit and vegetables, when you're eating an orange, for example, you get more than just the fiber, you're getting antioxidants like vitamin C as well. And in these pills and powders and supplements, you're just getting that fiber neat on its own. So it's great if you want to use it. Often they're quite unpalatable. So you might want to mix them in with yogurts or smoothies or shakes. But definitely from the real stuff, you're getting a bunch of other nutrients as well as the fiber. If anyone follows you on Instagram and they watch your stories, they'll see that you're pretty good at cooking up uh, a fiber-dense, uh, fiber-filled meal. What are some of your favorite ways to get your fiber in through your, your main meals? What do they look like? So, you know, when I was um, in my early 20s and, you know, sort of in the midst of university and I had a gym near me, I was all about kind of protein and having excessive amounts of meat. And I thought that was the way to go. And often that fiber lacked a lot of diet just purely because I couldn't eat more, you know, yeah. didn't have room for it. Slowly, I mean, I still eat meat, but I slowly understand that meat no longer has to be the main star of the dish. Actually, I have plant foods and fiber rich substances as like the main players. And if I eat meat, it's like a little side dish almost. The meat mm. is the side dish, not the main dish. And I probably just eat meat, you know, three times a week maybe. Um, and for me, my easiest sources of getting in more fiber is obviously like fruit salads at the end, at the end of the day. If I'm not feeling particularly hungry, but I want something sweet, I just get a big bowl of like sliced bananas, throw in some nuts, a lot of berries, um, you know, some kiwis, pears. I just chuck everything in, a bit of mangoes if I can get them in season. And literally, I'll just chop them up into small, you know, cube-sized um, you know, cube amounts and have a big bowl of fruit salad. And for me, that is an easy way just to get a bunch of fiber, soluble, insoluble, but also it tastes great as well. And the thing is, if you struggle to eat that much, you can even just blend these things up because you don't lose any of the fiber when you blend them up. And people often find it easier just to drink all of that. Mm. In addition to that, I love making like a lot of Indian dishes have a lot of lentils and legumes, you know, like bean stews, dal, things like that. And you just mix like lots of different types of lentils. And 
dal is essentially like a great dish to use whatever bits you have left over and chuck them in and you cook it with spices and it's just great because you've got all of these antioxidants and gut friendly fermented things and chemicals and garlic and onions a lot of prebiotics and it's just like an ultimate gut friendly meal so i definitely over the last 3 or 4 years have been more mindful of what i'm putting into my gut and actually looking to optimize my gut based on what i'm buying and what i'm cooking mm, yeah i'm i'm a, when i took a trip to nepal for a month there pretty much wasn't anything to eat while we were trekking other than we had dalbat every day and uh, that was that was exceptional and i uh, i felt the better for it i will admit yeah absolutely that, that that is like a classic dish when you're feeling unwell when you've got diarrhea when you got constipation you go for that rice curds dal mm. it's just such a staple and easy thing to do and you know don't get me wrong like i love to you know eat the odd takeaway or pizza or some kfc or mcdonald's like i had i had mcdonald's last night cuz uh, you know i had a long um you know shift at work uh, well I, i just had work all day and i just wanted something easy and 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 i just wanted to get something quick and i got that but for me it's not a big deal having a once in a while getting some chicken nuggets or you know something from the outside as long as like 80% and above of my diet is stuff that i've made at home or that's like fiber rich like that's fine with me last two i have on the the gut and and the stomach i want to address the two myths the one being you hear this a lot in sort of health spaces that if the longer the expiry date the worse it is for you is there any truth to that or is that just a one of those sound bites that we hear that are probably just you know a bit of a myth i mean there's a lot of foods that have longer shelf lives because they've got preservatives in them yeah now, what is the role of these preservatives and how it affects our gut health and microbiome i can't tell you the answer to that because there aren't enough human randomized control trials or longer term epidemiological studies which can determine that exact question now if you're thinking about what is best for your gut health so yeah of course fresh produce from the farm to your house is probably going to be the best and they're going to have shorter um you know freshness lives or they they're not going to be um you know suitable for consumption a week after you've bought them necessarily because they're fresh um so yeah those would be best for your gut health but if we look at that premise that things which last longer are not good for your gut let's take a look at canned tomatoes for example canned tomatoes actually have a higher amount of lycopene which is the antioxidant which gives tomatoes its red color which is good for us and good for our gut health it has more lycopene than fresh tomatoes you buy in the supermarket because as soon as you harvest fruit and veg they start degrading their nutritional value starts dropping so when you can them you basically put that nutritional degradation in stasis it's the same with frozen berries frozen berries are often packed with more antioxidants than the fresh stuff because they're frozen in time the nutritional wow. quality is frozen in time so that you know statement you know it's really you know there's not much to it once you dig deep in i think there is some truth in that yes fresh is better if you can afford it and if it's available in season but let's not forget canned items and tinned items and frozen items they last ages and they're pretty good for us i love that is the second stomach real 
the second stomach, the dessert stomach, is real on a physiological level. We physically don't have a second stomach. We're not like other ruminants like cows who may have additional stomachs. But, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, if you the hypothesis is in times of famine, we would basically eat what we would get. We'd be looking for sources of food. So if a hunter-gatherer found some food and ate it and to the point which that person was full, but then they stumbled upon another food source, which was maybe sugary, not savory, they would also feel hungry to eat that as well because it's another potential source of fuel and food, which was different to the meat item they may have had before. Similarly, our body recognizes different tastes may correspond to different nutrients, which is roughly sort of true. What you get from beef or chicken or from beans will be a different nutrient source than you can get from bananas or apples or pears. And so if you go to a buffet, for example, why do people tend to overeat at buffets? Because you have an abundance of food, textures, tastes, and consistencies and smells. So even though you've stuffed yourself full of the you know, barbecue ribs, you've still got room for some of that you know, cinnamon pineapple that comes in at the end because it's a different type of texture and flavor and taste. So your brain thinks, hang on, we need a bit of that extra different nutritional source as well. Uh, and that's essentially the kind of basis of the second or dessert stomach. Well, this is the type of information I wish I had when I was 10 years old, arguing with my mother about, you know, dessert. Um, I heard you once say that cognitive decline, um, dementia, Alzheimer's now scares you more than cancer. Why is that the case? I think it's um, uh, one of two things. I think one of the things is as someone who deals with a lot of cancers, GI cancers, so I'm talking about pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, bowel cancer, and breast cancer. I've seen in a lot of those cases, maybe not pancreatic cancer, but in bowel cancer, certainly skin cancers and breast cancers, how operations, novel monoclonal antibody therapies, chemotherapy, radiotherapy can often be curable. I mean, these things are curative treatments for these cancers. And I've seen how cancer actually can be conquered in a sense for that one person who may have easy to remove surgical cancer. On the other hand, what I've also seen is dementia, a lot of that in dementia. We have a very elderly patient population in the NHS, and a lot of these patients have vascular or Alzheimer's dementia or Parkinson's dementia or some sort of traumatic dementia. And it's irreversible. It's an irreversible decline, often gradual, often stepwise, often dramatic. And there is no cure, as we know, of for Alzheimer's. And the scary thing is, often you can pick up signs of cancer. So if someone's having some weight loss or bleeding from their rectum, okay, suspicious for cancer, go and get a colonoscopy. Okay, we found a little early cancer. We can just remove it now. You're cured. But in Alzheimer's, for example, in cognitive decline in general, often the seeds of Alzheimer's is planted decades before the clinical onset and the clinical manifestation of symptoms. So you could be in your 20s, 30s, and 40s and have those seeds sown for Alzheimer's, which will only become apparent in your 60s and 70s and 80s. And that worries me. Hmm. You know, and for me, I would hate to lose my cognitive capabilities, which is something I love learning things. I love reading things. And to lose that would be to lose part of me. 
This is a subject where there are a lot of, I would say, bad actors in the health space when it comes to talking about cognitive decline and people think, you know, saying that they, 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 they have the cure to be able to stop it. Is there anything that we can really do to combat that level of cognitive decline when it starts? Or is it just, can we slow it down? Is there anything you can really do other than just sort of accept your fate and try and manage it? So there is nothing that we can say for certain and say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be immune to this disease. And that goes for anything. You cannot make yourself immune to cancer. You cannot make yourself immune to autoimmune disease, uh, any injury, and be Alzheimer's as well. Mm. You can't cure yourself or make yourself immune to anything. You know, anything goes. All we can do, um, you know, take action and provide risk-reducing measures. And so risk-reducing measures for dementia, for example, include basic things that would be in line with basic health uh, promoting factors. That is, and one of the main things when it comes to that beyond anything else is sleep. Because we know that what if we look at the pathology of Alzheimer's, the main driving force that we know of from evidence and the published studies and clinical evidence is that you get an accumulation of various toxic proteins, uh, tau proteins, amyloid beta plaques, all of these things accumulate in the brain and stop the normal function of the nerve cells in the brain. Now, when we sleep at night, our brain actually has like a wash. There's a wash cycle which takes place. The cerebrospinal fluid washes the brain and the production of that flow of the cerebrospinal fluid is increased um, in the slow wave stages of sleep. When we're in that deep sleep, in the non-REM sleep, it increases the wash. Yeah. When we have chronic sleep deprivation, we are minimizing the chance for that wash. So those toxic proteins can accumulate and that can increase your risk of Alzheimer's. So sleep beyond anything is the number one preventative factor or risk reducing factor for Alzheimer's. Is there anything to this, the old saying, use it or lose it in the sense that you know, if, if you're the type of person whose job um, is quite routine, requires little critical thinking, you know, you come home and you don't have any hobbies that really engage your brain, you just want to escape, maybe you just sat watching TV and then you go back into your job that is just a, a set pattern of tasks that you don't have to think about. Is that person any more likely to uh, accelerate their cognitive decline than someone that is engage in their brain and thinking and, and, and critically thinking on the regular. Yeah, I mean, it's the idea of cognitive reserve. And although your brain is mainly fatty tissue, it still does behave like a muscle in a sense, where it can atrophy if you don't supply it with stress. And that stress can come in many forms. That's keeping it active. And it's engaging in new activities and hobbies. And for example, if you, the easiest way I like to think about the brain is if you think about the brain and the mind like a big library, the more things you do, the more social interactions you have, the more hobbies you have, and the more you keep it busy, you're stocking that library full of books. And as we age, some of those books get checked out and they don't get returned. But the more you keep your brain active with all of these social engagements and activities and exercise and these things which just give it that extra stress, 
it's like you're buying and sequestering new books to stock the library. So even though books are getting checked out as you age, there's still plenty of books there and your cognitive reserve and your library is still expanding or certainly stocked well enough to provide alternatives to the books which have been checked out. That is the simple kind of library analogy of the brain and neurodegeneration I like to think of. So, you know, the now one of the best ways apart from sleep is keeping active with any activities or hobbies that you have, even into your 60s, 70s and 80s. This is quite a funny thing to be talking about half hour into a conversation, but attention span seems to be um, quite <laughs> diminishing. And if you look at any sort of long form content creator, any podcast, any of your favorite podcasts, if you just pay attention to the the first question normally that the get uh, that the host answers, it's quite a trivial question. They're trying to sort of hack the attention span, and every ten minutes they'll try and drop in a quite a fun question. There's little things that 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 people do like that. And on TikTok nowadays, a platform that you know very well, I think the um, the metric is that you have about three seconds to grab someone's attention before it takes three seconds to decide whether they're going to watch a thirty second video or not. How can we stop our attention span from being affected by these new platforms, by this very fast-paced virtual world we live in? How can we take ownership and regain our attention span, if that's even possible anymore? You know, Lewis, the truth is I don't know the answer. And I don't know if our attention spans are just diminishing because of the modern world or are they diminishing because of things like these novel social media platforms which almost feed off the economy of our attention and demand quick, fast-paced things. And now we've engineered our brains to want quick answers, quick solutions, shortcuts, and fixes. Maybe that is just the, you know, perfectly epitomizes our society in this age. And that's why, you know, we have all these probiotic supplements and everything. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that is. Me personally, although I used to, engage in these tactics and grab those attention i think at the end of the day it loses nuance and when mm. i like to watch something for learning something i'm not necessarily just looking for those 30 second pieces yeah. i do some research i'll read the boring stuff because that is stuff i'm genuinely interested in so I, I don't think there's a way to kind of get back our attention except you know, almost disconnecting from the fast-paced nature of social media once in a while. You know, stop that endless scrolling and harvesting our mind into social media, but just get out and do other stuff. Like, you know, go, go and cook something. Mm. You know, that, that's, uh, that's long-form content in the real world, you know, cooking yeah. something. Or, you know, go for a walk with your dog or go to the park. All, all of those forms are like long-form content in the real world where actually – there is no end in sight. It is just you doing something for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, going to the gym. Um, so I think that's the only way, you know, disconnecting ourselves from the virtual world. I'll often argue with my mother over that I think I have a very good memory. She thinks I'm a liar. When I'm recounting memories from when I was a kid, and I remember them so vividly, and I'm just saying, I just have a very good memory. And she's saying, you've completely made that up. And this is something I read in your book that I found fascinating. How much of our memories are, are made up, and how, when, you know, how, how much of our memories can we actually trust anymore? Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. And, you know, 
our memory on our brain, it's like that game uh, telephone or, you know, it used to be called, you know, when I was a kid, Chinese whispers, yeah. right? Where one person whispers in another person's ear, like, you know, the ball is red. And then the next person keeps changing it progressively. And the next person on keeps changing that word. And by the time that sentence, the ball is red, gets whispered to the 10th person through nine other people, it becomes the dog is black or something, mm -hmm. right? The initial word gets completely mutated and evolves into something else. And that is something similar to what happens in our memories, because when you remember something, you don't actually recall, apart from the first ever time you think about it, you are no longer recalling the event. You are just recalling a duplicate memory of the event and the duplicate to the nth time. We don't really know. So something you're thinking of when you were a kid, you may be recalling, you know, a, a hundredth copy memory. And each time you remember that memory, it degrades slightly. It keeps degrading and your brain fills in the gaps with additional embellishments and other pieces of information, which is tailored to your own perceptions, experiences, and your wants. So actually you can tailor that memory slightly into what you think you want to remember. Wow. And which is why it's so easy to plant false memories into people like the film Inception. Yeah. The DiCaprio, where you can plant an idea into someone as to what you want. If you've seen a lot of these confessions and, you know, criminal cases, the detectives and the authorities can under duress and under stress put false memories into witnesses and, you know, help them to kind of solve the cases by kind of faking things, essentially. Well, I'm suddenly hoping that my mother doesn't listen to this podcast anymore. Um, is this such a thing as a broken heart? Not obviously physically speaking, but emotionally speaking. Is that, is there anything in that? So the broken heart thing is true from both, obviously, like a psychological point of view, which we know about. Everyone's been through some degree of heartbreak at some point, whether it's losing an, uh, a loved one or, you know, you kind of lose a, like an animal or a dog or a cat that you've loved. But it also happens physiologically as well. And, you know, it's called Takotsoba's cardiomyopathy in kind of science term. And essentially what happens is, the hypothesis is that you get such a flood of stress chemicals with extreme heightened emotions, whether good or bad, and it's usually associated with bad. So for example, uh, a couple are married for 50 years and suddenly, you know, the wife loses her husband. The anguish and grief, the kind of intense negative emotions associated with that means that the heart actually kind of undergoes some deformities and change to the point of you actually get a type of heart attack and the heart breaks and the person can die that can also happen positively for example if someone wins the lottery and they're so elated they can actually get takotoba's cardiomyopathy or a remodeling of the heart with that intense positive emotion as well but it's more often seen with the negative ones so i'm quite interested in sight now and i've been looking up a few things and reading on this with our modern office lifestyle technology, probably not a great selling point for encouraging people to watch this podcast on YouTube. How much can screen time affect our overall eye health and any potential threatening, you know, sight loss at all? So, 
I mean, we can't escape screens, whether it's, uh, you know, a small screen in the palm of our hands, an iPad or TVs or whatever. We, you know, we can't escape the screen and we're often keeping them so close to our faces. And interestingly, there is a new epidemic or a new pandemic emerging, essentially, the pandemic of myopia, of short-sightedness, especially in young children. Because of that chronic straining of the eyes and the chronic fatigue which happens, our eyes can actually remodel to some degree and the shape of the eye can change and almost become more rounded which can affect our vision long term um so yeah i mean excessive attraction and addiction to screens can affect our eye health in this way and beyond just short-sightedness even you know benign things just like eye fatigue just staring at screens all day if you're staring at a screen all day there's a good chance you're also sitting down at a desk all day as well which has untold chronic negative consequences on the musculoskeletal system and spine health as well one thing that i am dreadful for is using earphones a lot i'm just thinking of the last you know 12 or so hours. i i fell asleep last night with with one earphone in listening to a podcast i woke up this morning i walked to the gym i listened to a podcast on the way i had my earphones in whilst I was in the gym. I walked home listening to a podcast and now I'm sat here talking to you with earphones in. Um, how damaging can that be? And what advice would you give to people monitoring earphone use? Is it a case of how many hours it, or how, how much time they're using it for per day? Or is it the volume they have it at? What, what could you advise on that? So I generally say, you know, there's not a terribly, you know, negative long-term consequences with just, daily uh, you know headphone or earphone use but it's more about the time you use them per day and the volume so the 60 60 rule where you keep it at 60 percent for no longer than 60 minutes is generally like you know a, a decent rule to stick by like for example the conversation we have well if someone just has a normal conversation like you and i right now we're talking that's around like 60 decibels right and anything above consistently above 70 decibels could be harmful long-term chronically if for hours and hours harmful for our ears. A whisper is about 35 decibels. Uh, maybe like a, a loud train could be kind of reaching a hundred. So it's really about limiting exposure and damage to those hair cells and the eardrum and the hair cells are these sensitive, almost like little, um, you know, sound receptors within the deepest reaches of our ears. And they're so sensitive to sound and loud sounds that they can deform. And once you lose them, they don't grow back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about ear trimmers, nose trimmers? Are these things we should be using in moderation or are these things we need to stay away from altogether and can that affect us in any way? So, I mean, if you think about you know, hair in general, what is the role of cutting hair? You know, it, it's a societal expectation, right? If someone's got some nose hair sticking out of their nose, it's someone else perceives that it looks unsightly. Hmm. Similar to how, you know, uh, Gillette back in the days made it seem to women that underarm hair was a bad thing and they promoted shaving for women um, and even for men. Uh, you need to shave your legs. You need to shave your armpits. Why? Ha natural hair in all of these parts of our body plays a role in defense. It's an extension, an external component 
of the immune system, you could argue, similar like the skin. It's a defense barrier against germs. It can trap pollutants and germs and bacteria. Similar to that, ear hairs and nose hairs, the nose hairs acts like a filter, uh, an air filter, an environmental filter. It stops pathogens and bacteria and dust um, at particles getting inside our lungs because the nostrils are the opening to the lungs in our respiratory system. So when you remove these defense barriers, you almost weaken your own immune system in a way that it increases your exposure risk to all these harmful agents. So if you really are worried about the appearance of that, you can trim them rather than yanking them out at the source. I have one friend who, for some reason or another, not that he has anything, you know, diagnosed or he's seen a doctor, he's obsessed with anything that could potentially damage his sperm count. You know, he's always saying he won't have his phone anywhere near his, you know, anywhere near his pocket. He looks up certain foods and, and, and things that are either good or bad for your sperm count. There se it seems to be a minefield of information around that subject. What do we know about it? What do we have hard evidence for that can actually affect um, your, your sperm count? I mean, if you're looking at sort of hard evidence uh, for fertility and sperm count, you're, you're thinking of the obvious things. So smoking uh, beyond, you know, providing inflammation throughout the body, it can affect fertility, sperm count and sperm quality. And there's actually increasing evidence that vaping can also affect fertility across men and women and potentially oh. sperm count as well. Uh, other to any other toxins to the body, so alcohol, uh, chronic alcohol usage can also affect fertility uh, and sperm quality as well, potentially. Um, sleep, we know that chronic sleep deprivation can lower sperm count um, and also potentially quality of the sperm as well. This works for women as well. It can affect the, um, you know, the egg quality. Um, but also, you know, with regards to the phone, we know that prolonged heat exposure to the testicles can also affect sperm count and quality and volume as well. Um, but just having your phone in, in your pocket or near you is probably not the kind of heat intensity we're talking about. It's more like if you're working in a place where you're constantly of exposed to that kind of heated environment that maybe could affect it in a way. Um, but yeah, I mean, the general lifestyle factors that would affect other elements of your health would also affect the sperm quality and not to mention other things like, um, you know, obesity as well. Um, you know, having a greater size than appropriate for your uh, you know, intended ideal body weight as well can affect uh, fertility and sperm count and sperm function. So there are there are simple measures that we can take. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of the ideas about certain foods which can improve or affect it is bordering into pseudoscience territory. The last subject I wanted to touch on um, before we wrap up, and you've mentioned this a couple of times already, we've talked about the importance of sleep. Now, when I first really started becoming conscious of my sleep, it was after reading um, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Since then, there quite you know there are a few things in that book that I probably don't hundred percent agree with, but I you know I think it's a it's a good book for what it's done for waking people up. No pun intended to this subject. One of the things Matthew Walker used to talk about was blue light glasses, blue light blockers. 
But then I spoke to uh, Professor Russell Foster, who was very respected. He suggested that there's really no evidence to suggest that blue light glasses an hour before bed actually do anything um, to impact the quality of your sleep. When it comes to little tricks like that, blue light glasses, do you see any credibility in that or is that more of a placebo thing? Yeah, I mean, there's tons of evidence published. Um, well, not tons of evidence, but there is, there is enough evidence, both in trials and systematic reviews, suggesting that blue light blocking glasses don't really have any meaningful effect uh, mm. at improving your sleep. And it's the basic things. I mean, our sleep is affected by, you know, th many things, but three main things. Uh, and that is the light, the temperature, and your sort of stimulation levels uh, prior to going to bed. Yeah. You need to be less stimulated. You need to be sort of in a slightly more colder environment, and you need to minimize light sources. Now, if you can do those three things, you're probably doing a lot more than the majority of the population when it comes to sleep. So blue light blocking glasses and all of these other paraphernalia and adjuncts that people have it's almost like the guy that's going skiing for the first time and buying all of the gear but not actually knowing how to ski we can do easy things first just to help us right we don't need all the fancy stuff why if you're where if you're buying blue light glasses but then you're still on your phone at midnight you're not really improving your overall sleep hygiene you're kind of trying to paper over the cracks but not really that, that's yeah. what and lastly then and you're probably the the best person to ask this whenever i've spoken about sleep on this channel 99% of the comments are always people saying i work shifts i work nights this advice doesn't necessarily work for me you know i i can't stick to a routine because the number one piece of advice is wake up and go to bed at the same time every night that's not you know realistic advice for most people out there and um, people have busy lives kids um jobs night shifts in your experience working the shifts that you've worked throughout your career what are the best sleep tips for shift workers so you know the worst type of shifts that i do are night shifts obviously and in night shifts there's a few things that i like to do um you know i like to keep my meal times fixed so I'll still have breakfast in the morning. So, you know, at seven o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning, I'll, I'll have my breakfast. I'll have my um, sort of evening meal just before I go on to shift. And usually when I wake up for a night shift, I'm up by around sort of you know three o'clock anyway. So I have all my meals in sort of roughly the same time because when you're at that sort of night shift period and you're awake at night, your entire digestive system and everything is out of sync with the rest of your body so when you add more food and fluid into that night shift it actually further dysregulates your sleep i've found in any way and there is some evidence to suggest that in the literature as well so i keep my meal times the same on the night as it is day when i'm coming back to my house after the night shift i'm wearing sunglasses even if it's winter just to minimize my light before i come into bed and i've recently oh, i say recently but about two years ago i purchased uh, some very heavy blockout curtains in my room, blackout curtains. And I have those 
all throughout the year. And I put that at any point of the year and they have the added benefit of reducing sound as well. So I'm literally in like a dark chamber as I'm sleeping at night and it's nice and cool. It provides that kind of like, uh, you know, cool insulation as well. And really it's the number one thing as well about the night shift. Don't sleep at night in your night shift. If you get like an hour or two that there's not much going on, I used to sleep. If I could for like half an hour, just have a little power nap. That's probably one of the worst things you can do because for that week or however long you're doing the night shift, your whole clock is flipped. So you actually want to keep as awake as possible in the night shift because every time you sleep, you actually lower your sleep threshold and you make yourself less tired because by the time it rolls around to morning and you finish your shift, you want to be as tired as possible. So you get a good morning sleep. If you sleep a little bit, you lower your sort of tiredness levels because the adenosine is lowered every time you sleep. So stay awake in the night shift, keep yourself warm. So you're alert as well and keep yourself exposed to bright lights at night. So just do the opposite at yeah. night. Fantastic. Well, We've been here today to talk about this book. This book may save your life. Um, thanks to your generous publishers, I have three copies of this book to give away. So if anyone out there watching who doesn't have the book yet, maybe just comment down below uh, saying what you enjoyed about this interview, what your favorite part was. I'll pick three people at random. But for those who don't win a copy of the book, where is the best place for, to point everyone to to go and check this out for themselves and connect with yourself on social media and the like? Uh, so essentially anywhere you're on the world, you can grab it on Amazon or you can check the link in my profile on Instagram. It will take you to wherever you need to be if you're in the UK. It's at Waterstones, WH Smith as well. So anywhere you buy books, you should be able to find it. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all the links are down below as well. Dr. Curran, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you very much, Lewis.